Hello, and welcome to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities, a network of private campuses working to educate students for the public good. Our podcast speaks with insightful experts about current and future issues in higher education and examines the impact of higher ed on society. Thank you for joining us. Retiring from a leadership position and returning to faculty is unique and common to higher education. But how easy a transition is it for both the person retiring or for the faculty colleagues who have to welcome the leader back to their department? I'm your host, Sean Creighton, president of NACU. In this episode, we'll talk with Lisa Jasinski, whose recent book, Stepping Away, Returning to the Faculty from Senior Academic Leadership, is a researched study on this very scenario. Lisa Jasinski is a scholar practitioner of higher education with nearly 20 years of experience supporting senior academic leaders. She currently serves as Senior Director of Strategic Initiatives in the Office of the President at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Lisa Jasinski, welcome to the NACU Podcast. Sean, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you today. Yeah, I'm excited about our conversation. And uh, you know, before we get into it, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your your background in higher ed, and you know the current work that you're doing at the uh, University of Texas San Antonio. So I like to call myself a scholar practitioner of higher ed. I have a PhD in higher ed leadership and policy. So I like to do qualitative research about things that. Uh, institutions, frankly, could do better. And what I really like is the ability to take some of those questions and to really do them as an administrator. I've worked in higher ed for about 20 years, and I spent the bulk of that time at a private institution. And about two years ago, I came to the University of Texas at San Antonio, where I work on the university's strategic plan. So in some ways, I, I like to call myself a midwife of the plan. So I don't make up the plan, but I work with exceptional colleagues at all levels of the institution to think about where we're going and to make sure that people have the understanding and the information and the data to get there. What drew you to wanting a career in higher ed? It wasn't something I necessarily set out to do, but when I was in college, I was an art, art history major, and I thought for sure I would go on to maybe be an academic, or I thought that I would work in a museum setting, as maybe as a curator or something like that. But I spent the most of my time when I was in college on the debate team. And while I was never a great debater, my favorite part of being on the debate team was that every weekend we went to a different college or university for a tournament. And that turned me into something of a higher ed anthropologist. So every time we were on a different campus, I loved better understanding the culture and the buildings and and what this college had to do with that college. And so by the time I had graduated as an undergrad, I had probably visited 30 or 40 institutions across the U.S., some institutions abroad. And that as I went throughout my career, I always came back to that as being something that just fascinated me, institutions as organizations, as cultural bastions, as interesting historical places. So I think once I got that bug, it never left me. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really exciting. I want to dive into your book because you recently authored a book 
It's published by Rutgers University, and it's called uh, Stepping Away, Returning to the Faculty After Senior Academic Leadership. And before we really get into it, you know, what made you think about writing this book and, you know, kind of the impetus behind it? So I was one of those adults that went back to school and I was finishing my doctorate while I was working full time as a special assistant to a vice president for academic affairs. And one day my vice president invited me into his office and he said, Lisa, I want to give you a heads up that I'm going to announce that I'm stepping down as vice president and I'll take a leave and then I'll return to the faculty. And you can imagine in a moment like that, so many things were going through my mind. I was thinking about what this meant for our university. He had been in the role for 17 years. It was hard to imagine the university without him. And tons of personal questions, right? What is this going to mean for me? Which I think is a very common question that people think when they learn that their leader is moving into a different role. But also, what was it going to mean to him? He had been an administrator for two decades what kind of transition is this? And since I was in graduate school at the time and I, I was in graduate classes, the first thing I did is I went you know, right into the databases and I said, what, what does the scholarship say? And I found that there was very little information. And it felt like the project that I really wanted to pursue because I had this, I was watching it unfold in real time at my institution but I knew that as a researcher, I wanted to think more about leaders as opposed to other topics that are very worthy of study in higher ed. But that, that was my, my niche and what I was good at. And I also knew that as a qualitative researcher, I wanted to do interview-based research, and this felt like the perfect project to do that. So it's really like this moment of origin story. In that moment, I can remember going home that night and telling my husband, I think I found my project. And it felt like it felt right on that line between has a lot of practical application. And yet I think it's just an interesting theoretical question. How do we go through moments of transition in our personal lives and our professional lives? And really, I think since that conversation, and I, this goes all the way back to 2016, I've been kind of obsessed with that topic ever since. Yeah, so that real personal moment there in in the office that inspired this work that you went on to do. You know, how, how common, and think about our listening audience today that, you know, there's probably a lot of people in higher education that might understand this conversation, but there might be others listening too that are asking questions, well, well, how common is this? You know, the situation you describe where, you know, an academic leader is uh, kind of returning to faculty. Is that something unique to higher education? Well, it's very unique to higher education. I think sometimes, you know, one of the biggest challenges that people face when they're in this kind of transition is helping other people outside of academia understand what it means. I think for a lot of people, you know, you're working and then you're retired. You don't think about the CEO of a company leading the company for 15 or 20 years and then saying, I'm done. I'm going to go back to marketing and handle my accounts, or I'm going to go back to the accounting department and uh, you know resume my duties as assigned. So it's a very special and unique thing. And I would say as, it, as institutions, we do not have very good data on how often this happens or why it happens. We spend a lot of time, I think, as an industry identifying you know that our presidents are getting older, that 
institutional leadership changes are becoming more and more frequent. We know that based on great data from the American Council on Education, presidents are serving less than six years on average. But it's hard to say with great precision, are they going back to the faculty? Are they taking new jobs? Are they moving into retirement? So it's hard to say how often it happens. But I think most of us who have been working in higher ed for a decade or more you can probably think of at least one example at your institution where this happens. So it it happens over the course of a professional career, sometimes just a few times, or maybe at some institutions, it happens more frequently. When I think about the institutions that we work with at the New American Colleges and Universities, absolutely, I can think of a number of examples where uh, presidents have retired and gone back to faculty or provosts, for that matter, even moving beyond, not wanting to take that next step and apply for a presidency, but deciding to go back to the faculty. And uh, and I work right now primarily with private colleges. Right. Did you find at all in some of your research a difference between institutions, whether it's private, public, or small, medium, in terms of this stepping back? So I think one of the things is that I, I tried to take a really diverse sample. So I wanted to talk to people from every kind of institution. So in the the 50 or so people I interviewed for the book, They really come from all walks of higher ed. They come from major public flagships. They come from Ivy League institutions. They come from small private colleges. They also come from single gendered institutions, religiously affiliated, non-religiously affiliated. And it's too small of a sample to say with great certainty that, you know, this is a snapshot in time of people that I talked to. But I do think that there are a few differences that happen between public and private institutions. Oftentimes, public institutions, it might be mandated in state law. Uh, Sometimes things like salary structure are mandated in state law. A few states have that, California, North Carolina, Tennessee. Other times, it's really left to the individual institution. And of course, at most private institutions, these negotiations can be handled behind closed doors, and and most of us will never know exactly the terms of a person's contract or how much they're paid when they go back. I mean, how much does um, having tenure create this stepping back and, and returning to faculty for leaders? I mean, I think folks who have tenure and they're in positions of academic leadership. So you think about your presidents, your chancellors, provosts, deans, and even some other folks. So folks who serve in associate dean capacities or perhaps a vice president or an associate vice president, you're going to see that it's far more likely that those are the folks who who came from the classroom at the beginning of their career and they want to go back I'd say increasingly, these are people who have this built into their contracts. Sometimes they call them retreat rights, that they always know, no matter what happens, this is always an option that's available to them. So I think you'll definitely find that these situations are far more common at institutions that grant tenure, or it's an option that's more attractive or appealing for an, an individual who has tenure. Well, let's dive even further into your research. When an academic leader or a president returns to the faculty, what are what were some of the common challenges in making that transition? There's a lot of individual variations, so but I think that there are some themes that come across that are universal to the experience. A lot of people say teaching is harder than I thought. 
I think um, sometimes if you've been out of the classroom for a while, and many full-time administrators have to step away from teaching entirely because it's it's just too demanding on a daily basis. And so I think sometimes getting back into the rhythm of teaching, feeling comfortable, being on your feet, answering you know questions that come out of left, right, and center. I think some people kind of have that initial feeling that there's definitely some adjustments that are happening. The second thing is many leaders who make this journey, they experience and use their time very differently. And that's something that takes some getting used to. So as administrators, there's somebody in the book who said, I used to spend 60 hours a week on the meeting treadmill. And if you're used to living your life in 15, 20, 30 hour long intervals of going from meeting to meeting to meeting, the relative flexibility of a professorial schedule is almost the opposite of that. And sometimes it's not just the number of things you're doing, but it's really having complete control and direction over your time. And oftentimes, people need to retrain their brains to think like that. How can you be productive in these long stretches of time? You know, I think you'll find, depending on the person, resuming a research agenda can be easy or difficult. Again, it depends if the person has a project in mind. We haven't really talked much about the kind of personal sides of the transition. But in addition to kind of all of the work-related challenges that change, I think you'll find there's always a little bit of a challenge of reinventing yourself at home and in different relationships now that you don't see yourself as the president or the provost and you're maybe not as closely defined between your identity and your job. I don't know if you were able to kind of uncover the perspective of the faculty that they're returning to, like, here comes a president emeritus now, you know, going back to the history department, you know, how about the faculty colleagues in that department? How do they handle that return? It's a good question. So I want to say this is, uh, you know, in some, as a researcher, we use the word to say it's a delimitation of my study. So I, I really wanted to kind of experience this transition inside the eyes of somebody who's doing it. But I heard so many anecdotes over the course of research about what they heard. And in some cases, I think on the maybe some of the harshest side, uh, you know, and sometimes there were faculty colleagues who had really kind of curt things to say to the administrators of kind of like, I'll never forgive you. You'll never be one of us. I'll never recognize you as a peer. So if that's one extreme, then you have the other extreme of people who, you know, they're walking back into their faculty office. You can imagine them carrying their coffee cup and their cardboard box and people welcoming them with open arms to say, you know, you've finally seen the light, that you've left the dark side. There's a, there's a lot of metaphor in this space, and and that's one. So I think you can find that, you know, there's sort of maybe faculty colleagues are more or less receptive. But I would say generally, there's also just a lot of initial awkwardness and confusion. I think sometimes if you've if you've gotten used to, you know, like my former vice president who had been at the helm for 17 years, He's not going to move into a faculty office and be immediately seen and accepted as a peer overnight. It can take some time to both for him to get more comfortable with the role he serves in the institution, but also for other colleagues to really see and understand him as a faculty peer. There's a lot of variations, and I think 
there's always local context, like why the person left, what kinds of relationships they had, what kinds of things they had to do as a leader. But um, it kind of, it runs the gamut from, you know, hostile to welcoming to everything in between. In terms of stepping back in, did you find in your research or make some recommendations for like real practical strategies, you know, to help leaders navigate this return to faculty? I think there's probably four things that that leaders could think about to make this a little bit easier. The first is to ask a lot more questions. I think asking a question is probably, it's a one of those acts of humility that it signals to other people in the outside world, I'm new here, I don't have all the answers. And I think it can be really important for a leader to signal to other people that they're different. And one way they do that is maybe they dress more casually, but they adopt this posture where they say, I'm I'm not the boss anymore and I'm telling you what to do. I you know, I want to ask more questions. What have you found in your teaching? Or how do I place a textbook order? But be open and be curious and ask questions. The second thing I was thinking about was I think to get the the art of this right is means that you have to balance stepping up and hanging back. So I think some people, when they return to the faculty, their immediate impulse might mean to defer, to make themselves invisible, to be as kind of seen around the margins as possible. But I also think there's ways in which leaders can step up and they can help their departments. They can give kind of insider information you know, not about confidential matters like personnel things, but they can really share how leaders make important decisions like budget or things like that. So share your knowledge, share your networks, be of assistance, find ways to keep serving your institution in this new capacity. And then two more to think about. One is to be really kind to yourself This is a journey and it's going to take a couple of years, probably, you know, two years or more to feel like you've really settled in and you're fully comfortable with yourself. So don't expect this to be all the changes to happen overnight. And then lastly, the fourth is to recognize and relish in the freedom of being an academic. I think um, lots of people I interviewed in this process said that they, they left one job that they loved in a position of leadership to go back to the best job in the world. As as academics, you have a lot of freedom and flexibility in what you think about and how you teach and how you spend your time. And don't be afraid to surprise yourself a little bit. Maybe you're going to end up loving something that you never expected or something you had really been looking forward to won't go the way you planned. But I think that's a gift. And to experience that mid-career, late-career it's a thing to relish and to celebrate. I mean, this is such a small thing, but I imagine also giving up any perks that you had as a leader, like whether it's a parking spot, you know? Yeah, basketball <laughs> tickets. That's what people say. I miss my courtside seats. That's something, or the or the salary difference, but they're- Right, right. That's an adjustment too. The bigger yeah. office for the smaller faculty, hovel, things like that. Yeah. You know, I see Leo Lambert, President Emeritus, Elon University, wrote the forward to your book. How did this come to be? And, and maybe, you know, without giving away all of the, the secret sauce in the, of the book, because I want everyone to go out and read it, can you share a couple of key takeaways from, from Leo's perspective? 
I was really fortunate when I was doing my research. It was it was at the moment of Leo's transition. And like many people working in higher ed, I had I had always been aware of the work he had done and really to transform Elon into the institution we know it as. He's also just an incredibly generous person. He's generous in spirit. He's thoughtful. He loves to make connections. And when I was researching the topic, I connected with him. He just approached his transition with such a sense of grace and uh, really trying to put the institution first. So we connected early in the project and we kept talking. And then when it came time for me to revise the dissertation and turn it into a book, I, I asked him to do this and he very kindly agreed. So I, um, we've been pen pals ever since. So we, we exchange a lot of emails and you know we, we spend some time on Zoom. But I think the things that Leo really talks about, and I'm grateful that he could say those things in a foreword that I can't exactly say as a researcher. You know, he's been there and he puts a very human dimension on it. And um, I think he gives some great examples of how leaders who return to the faculty can continue to add value to their institution. And in Leo's case, that's a matter of maintaining relationships with the broader, you know, friends of Elon. Um, I know that he's done a little work with things like fundraising, and it's partly just based on the fact that he has 20 years of relationships as a president. But he does a really good job, too, of talking about how he adds value in a way that is always in deference to the current leadership. He gives some really concrete and explicit conversations he's had to the president so that he can understand what the the lines are, where he can help and and where he can defer. And and I want to say I think when it's coming from a peer, Leo's advice about how former presidents can keep their egos in check and uh, you know, keep the institution's needs first and foremost. I think he says that beautifully and he does it with such a dental hand. So um, I'm really grateful to Leo and just being part of this project. Well, what comes next? I mean, you, you did the research, you wrote the book. Are you thinking of other ways to kind of apply this research and, and help academic leaders who are, who are transitioning back to faculty and also help you know, faculty accept them back into their departments. You know, I think one of the things that I've been able to do this year that I think has been really fun is that in addition to the book, I've written some short pieces for the Chronicle. And those tend to be short, highly digestible pieces. And and as a writer, I just found that to be a great challenge. And um, as scholars, we we hope that our, our work has a positive impact in the world, but I know that that's a way that I can make it just a little more accessible to the average person who has 10 or 15 minutes today. So um, by all means, I'm I'm been really delighted to get the word out that way. I'm not collecting data right now, and I'm, it's nice to take a break, but I love hearing from people who are doing this. So between the book and the pieces in the Chronicle or higher ed jobs, it's been really fun to get emails from strangers and saying, oh, you know, this part really resonated with me, but here's how my story is different or here's what's challenging. So I, I'm i just inherently interested in the topic. So I love thinking about that. The other thing I'm excited to think about is later this spring, Leo and I are going to do a panel with two other former college presidents for the Association of Governing Boards. And I think that's a group of people that would really benefit from hearing this story. 
and thinking a little bit more creatively and holistically about presidential transitions or other senior leadership transitions. In many ways, the book is kind of a, a primer for somebody who's going through the process. But I think that there's some really tactical things that boards could be thinking about and how they prepare for transitions, how they make these smooth, how they usher one person in and welcome another. And so I think it'll be exciting to kind of turn the research on its side a bit and and try to think about how those audiences might benefit from hearing it. Yeah, that seems like a perfect setting for, for this work uh, as you begin to expand it out further. And, uh, you know, I guess I, I want to give the opportunity to, you also have a podcast, don't you? Maybe you could plug that. So um, I want to say there's not a lot of episodes. So if, uh, you know, it's um, maybe about five years ago, I worked on a podcast with um, some colleagues about some research we did about faculty-led study abroad. So the story is called Postcard Pedagogy. They are, they are short episodes, so they are postcard size, which we say about 10 minutes or less. And all of the episodes are conversations with faculty members who have traveled with students either domestically or internationally to do experiential learning of all kinds, whether it's you know archival-based research or um, we have a really fun episode about a unique project at Davidson College to take the basketball team to Auschwitz to learn more about the Holocaust. And um, I think those are such innovative and interesting pedagogical challenges for faculty. So it was really fun to interview people and to capture their stories. Well, I, I certainly encourage people listening today to check out that podcast as, as well as pick up your book. I want to thank you, Lisa, for being our guest today on the NACU podcast. And I'll look forward to following what comes next uh, in, in your work and, and the exciting uh, change that you're making and helping others. Uh, so again, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Connect, Collaborate, Champion. As president of the New American Colleges and Universities, I am honored to work with our network of innovative campuses committed to increasing the social and economic mobility of students from all walks of life. A special thank you to our producer of this episode, George Drake Jr. To learn more about NACU campuses, visit nacu.edu.